Welcome to my second podcast. The uh, story which I'm going to tell now relates to a person who became my friend um, in the late 1990s. His name was Andrew Black, known to his friends as Bert. And Bert had an idea as a former professional gambler, which really arose not out of any particular professional ambition, but out of his personal uh, interests and the desires. As a former professional gambler, Bert liked nothing more than playing poker through the night with his friends. And he would, he would structure several uh, such games every week until he ran out of people who were willing to lose money to him because he usually won. He was a very good poker player. But the idea which he had arose from the fact that he really liked the game because it was free. It was free in the sense that if one person lost, another person won. There were no nasty, horrible bookmakers uh, around the table, no house, no casino, no, nobody who was actually going to say to each of the gamblers, you have to pay us a certain percentage of your winnings. Uh, and therefore, whatever was lost by one person was, was won by another, usually Bert. <laughs> so he won two ways. But what he really liked was the idea that it was free. And he thought, well, why can't that principle be extended to the big world of gambling, to gambling on football or horse racing or any of the other things that people gamble on? Why did we have to have people who were setting the odds? And he had a stroke of genius because he thought, well, in a way, perhaps I can construct an electronic market which would be similar to the stock market, where anyone who wanted to voice an opinion on a particular event would be able to contact other people through the website and would be able to say, uh, I don't think this particular horse or this particular football team is going to win, as well as to say, I do think it's going to win. So that you would have people on both sides of the equation, you people who wanted to back a particular team or horse, for example, and the people who wanted to back against that particular horse. And therefore, the electronic market would be set up and there would be a tiny amount taken in commission by the company that he wanted to set up, which he called Betfair, because the idea was that it was fair to the bettors. Uh, there were no deductions apart from a very small amount of commission, far less than the bookmakers would take when they set their odds. And this was such a great idea that uh, he went out and found a, a brother of a friend to go and try and promote the idea with venture capitalists. And you know what happened? They couldn't find any venture capitalists who were willing to back the team. And this was because one of the great dogmas of venture capitalists, which they all share, is that the management team must be experienced in what they're doing. Now, that's common sense, really, isn't it? Absolutely common sense. Uh, that if people had not run a company before, and if they had not had experience in the sector before with a business, then they shouldn't be able to get someone else's money because they would probably lose it. Not lose it gambling, but lose it in setting up a company and not having a successful company. So 
he assembled a team of people who were either sports enthusiasts or were uh, people who had a particular interest in gambling. And they thought that this was a way to set up a company. And they were amazed when all the venture capitalists they went to in London, which is the gambling centre of the world, said, no, we're not going to invest in this. And eventually they managed to cobble together a relatively small amount of money. I think it was about a million quid, million pounds sterling. And they got that from their friends and family, essentially. Uh, people who were too naive to understand the rules of the game of venture capital investing. And they ran the company for about six months. And then the company ran out of money, not surprisingly, uh, because it's quite expensive to start a company, to build a website and all that sort of stuff. They did it on a shoestring, but nevertheless, they did run out of money. And the commission which they got from people gambling actually was not enough to cover the overheads. And so they were in quite a desperate position when about uh, six months after starting the company, I was approached by someone who was a friend of Bert's, but it was also a friend of mine. And although I didn't know Bert, we were put in touch with each other. And I looked at the numbers in this company and I was absolutely gobsmacked. I, was, I have not been so surprised in all my life because although the numbers were tiny, this was a company that was growing at 60% a month. 60% a month. It was quite astonishing. And I just sort of, you know, did a little bit of extrapolation, not using a spreadsheet because even today I can't use spreadsheets, but I can use uh, an old-fashioned Hewlett-Packard uh, calculator. And I just calculated that if they continued to grow this rate for a year, the business would be quite large and profitable. And if they could grow not at 60% a month, but at 60% a year for two or three years, then the company would actually make a significant dent in market share. And that's all I needed to know. I didn't know how to build a website. I had no experience in the tech sector. I had no one advising me who did. The only person I did ask about this, who was a friend of mine called Patrick Weaver. He was a, um, a sports journalist. In fact, to be more specific, he was a racing tipster. And I asked him to have a look at this. And he said, well, from a customer's point of view, I think this is a great idea because the bookmakers are ripping everybody off. And this isn't. And so I can quite understand why it's growing so fast because people are recommending, gamblers are recommending it to their friends and they weren't doing that through a sense of altruism, not really, well, not entirely, or not only, because if they could get more and more people to uh, bet on this system, then that would mean that they could place larger bets themselves and get them matched by someone taking the opposite point of view. So it's classic example of a network business where the marketing for the business is actually done by the customers. And so therefore you don't need any marketing expense. And in the early years, Betfair spent absolutely nothing, zero, zip, nil, nada on marketing. But it continued to grow very, very fast. And I actually made an investment in the company. Oh yeah, I, I forgot to say that 
the second time around, when they went to go and see the venture capitalists, they said, look, you're, we're growing very fast. And then the venture capitalists in London would look at them and say, well, you might be growing very fast, but you're diddly squat. This is a tiny, tiny little business. And anyway, you don't know how to run a business. If you want to get money from us, go and hire some professionals who have managed uh, betting companies before. Um, and they were considering having to do that, but then, then my friend Anthony Rice introduced me to Burt Black and to his partner. And I then looked at it and decided that I would make a small investment in the company, uh, relatively small, and it's a mil- it was a million and a half pounds that I put into the company. And that was enough to get the company to break even, and it gave me a 10% stake in the company at that time. And the long and the short of it is that this business, against all the rules of the venture capitalists, was very successful. Now, does that mean that the venture capitalists were wrong? No, it doesn't at all. Nowadays, I would never invest in a company where the people had not got experience in the industry. But what it does illustrate is that even with a relatively inexperienced, and I have to say, to be perfectly honest, a very weak management team, this business was hugely successful and it made me somewhere in the order of 50 times my money for the first money that I put in. And in total, I made about £80 million out of this particular business. And... The reason for that is the subject of this podcast, because the thing which was great about Betfair was that it was a star business. And the inexperience of the management team didn't help, obviously, but the idea was so powerful that it was a huge success. And this is not an isolated example. Since then, I've made several other investments in such companies, which are stars. And I'll tell you what a star is in in a moment. But it is, to me, quite amazing that a simple principle of strategy can cause a business and the people who started it and the early people who worked in it to become very rich because of the power of the idea. And this idea can be described, I'll describe it in a few minutes. And if you latch onto this idea, you too can make a fortune. You too can start a business which is a star business or help to accelerate it as one of the early employees and have a very interesting life, develop your skills very considerably and also make a lot of money. And I really, I'm staggered by the power of this idea. And I'm also staggered by the fact that I'm still the only person in the universe, as far as I know, who is actually investing on the basis of businesses having to be a star business or at least having the potential to be a star business uh, in the future. At least a chance of making a lot of money because it's a star business. Well, some examples. Google search is a star business. Amazon was, and in certain of its businesses still is. eBay is a star business. Skype's a star business. Intel, Ford, McDonald's, Walmart. The first budget airline, Southwest Airlines, and its imitators, Ryanair and EasyJet. Apple devices, Charles Schwab brokerage. Going further back, the Coca-Cola company was a star business for about 100 years, just absolutely amazing. 
And for me, as I, as I explained in my book, The Star Principle, Filofax, Belgo Restaurants, Plymouth Gin and several other businesses that I have invested in were star businesses and made me a very high return on the capital which I put into those businesses. So I'm not teasing you, but I think it's about time to explain what a star business is. But I'm going to do it with another story, which is when I graduated from the Wharton Business School a long, long time ago, way back in the dark ages, I decided that I would interview with a new type of company which had grown up and was itself a star business in the 19... It was founded in 1963 and about uh, 12 years later, 13 years later, I joined this company. And the company is called the Boston Consulting Group. And I sought for an explanation of, as to why this company was growing very fast. It, it had started in Boston, not surprisingly, Boston, Massachusetts. And they had opened an office in London. And I had worked in America, but uh, I had studied in America. But I wanted to come back to Britain, which was a very peculiar thing to do at that time because the country was going to the dogs, it was run by a socialist government and so on and so forth. Notwithstanding all of that, um, I decided to join the Boston Consulting Group. And when I was interviewing, the person who interviewed me was a very, very nice man, very bright guy who himself started a star business called Computer Center later, Philip Hume, Phil Hume. And I said to him, why is your company growing so fast? And I thought he would say, well, it's because we've got very good consultants or, you know, some other explanation. But he didn't say that. What Phil said to me was, we have a model. Oh, yes, I thought. Uh, I thought of the obvious sexual connotation of a model. But he said, no, we have a model which explains why businesses will be successful. And what he was talking about was the old... Boston Consulting Group box, the Boston box, the gross share matrix, call it what you will, the thing that has cash cows, dogs, question marks, and stars. And he said, we can analyse a business and tell companies by getting just a few facts about the business, which of their businesses they should stay in, which of their businesses they should sell, which of their businesses they should put cash into, which of their businesses they should expand, and which businesses will make them very successful in the future. And he went through all this gross share matrix stuff, which I think is wonderful. Uh, and he said to me, at the end of the day, there are very few businesses where companies make most of their money. If you segment the market correctly, you have to understand that even big businesses make most of their money in a relatively small proportion of their sales revenue, their turnover, and they make the profits in the businesses which have these, this characteristic. And the characteristic is twofold. One is that they have a leading market share, that they're the number one in their particular segment. It might not be the whole market. It usually isn't, actually. It's usually a niche in some form or other, but it's defensible in the sense that the other people can't actually invade that niche very easily. So they're the market leader, they're the number one. In the jargon that BCG used, they have a high relative market share. 
and I'm going to explain what a relative market share is because it's important. I don't like jargon any more than anybody else does. But relative market share means that absolute market share is much less important than whether you are bigger or smaller than the biggest competitor, either excluding yourself or including yourself. So if, for example, you have a 60% market share, but there's a number two in the business that has a 30% market share, your relative market share is 60 divided by 30, which is two times. Not bad. But the ideal is to be absolutely dominant in the business. It's not a situation that you're either the leader or you're not, and that's the important thing. The important thing is how dominant you are. The important thing is whether the person, uh, the company, which is the number two to you, is much smaller than you or almost the same size. It's a huge difference. So, for example, it might be that the number two player has 10% market share and that uh, you have 60% market share, that would be a relative market share of six times. Uh, and but having a relative market share of six times versus two times, which we calculated later when I started, or co-started, co-founded the, the consulting firm LEK, would mean that your return on capital was roughly double what it was at two times. And therefore, your profitability was double and your profits would be double for the same degree of sales. And the ideal situation is actually to be so dominant that there hardly is another competitor, which is a situation that at various times Apple has found itself in by inventing new devices, eventually losing some relative market share, but still remaining the leader. Google search invented an algorithm which was so good that they became absolutely dominant in search and still are by far the market leader in that. And so the idea is that it's relative market share and dominance which is important, not just market leadership. The second criterion is a very simple one, which is that the business must be growing at least 10% a year. Arbitrary uh, cutoff point that BCG invented, but actually as with relative market share, it helps to be greedy. In other words, 20% market growth is more than twice as good as 10%. 60% market growth is more than six, six, six times as good as 10%. I like my businesses in the early days to be growing like Betfair was at well over 100% a year. And you can find businesses like that. They don't retain that growth rate. But by the time that the growth slows, it will be a very, very large business. And if you retain the highest possible market share in that business, it will be amazingly profitable and cash positive. And really what I have done in writing the book, The Star Principle, is to simplify the growth share matrix, the Boston box, and say, actually, there are four types of businesses, but the ones to concentrate on are the growth uh, star businesses where you are the leader. And 95% of all the profits and cash I calculated once, roughly 95%, that has been generated by American or international businesses over the last 100 years came from star businesses, either businesses which are still stars or businesses which have turned into cash cows after being stars for a number of years. 
And for me, as I explain in the book, Filofax, Belgo Restaurants, Plymouth Gin, and a number of other businesses that I don't want to talk about because I'm afraid that that would give prominence to what I'm doing with them, uh, have actually been star businesses and have made a lot of money for the shareholders. So there are two ways to become a star. One is to invent the niche and protect it, which is, if you like, the model which Apple has taken uh, and the model which McDonald's took and Southwest Airlines and Charles Schwab Brokerage and all the others. And the other way is to drive a follower business, which is a reasonably strong number two, into a dominant market share position. Because during a period of high market growth, managers are generally distracted and shareholders and boards are distracted by looking at the absolute growth in turnover and profit. And they don't look at the relative market share. So one of the the key things about many star businesses, the only danger with a star business is that it stops being a star because you eventually run out of relative market share. Someone overtakes you and becomes the number one. You might still be growing well. The profits and the profit and loss statement may look very good. The share price may still be very high. But that is the road to rack and ruin because once someone becomes the leader, the competitive dynamics favour them. As BCG worked out, they will be able to get the lowest cost position because they have higher volume, higher overhead coverage, higher experience in, in making a product or in selling a product. And so therefore, you do need to defend that relative market share. The flip side of that is that the second way to become a star is to drive a follower to a dominant market share position. My final observation on stars, I'm just, as I said before, constantly amazed that this one principle can make people successful. And what is most interesting to me is that stars are for everyone. They're not something that only a brilliant entrepreneur can do. They're not something that only a rich money bags can do. Uh, Stars are for the people who work in them. And the way that a young person in their 20s or 30s can actually really succeed is not to think about their ability or their hard work or the people that they, other people that they work with. The way to get ahead is to join or start a star business. And if you do that, even if you don't start the business yourself, but you join when there are only 10 people in the company or 20 people in the company, Look at, the, look at the example of Microsoft. There are 20 billionaires that have been made billionaires by Microsoft. The same must be true of Amazon. The same must be true of Google. Just think what it's like to be the 10th person into Google or the 10th person into Amazon or the 10th person into Apple. The company is going to the moon. Nobody realises it unless they understand the star principle, but the company is going to be hugely successful. And the early people who join will get responsibility for doing stuff that they would never get in a normal company because growth creates opportunity. When people start a business and it's a new business like Betfair, they don't know what they're doing. And so consequently, everyone is in the same position of mutual ignorance. And the people who get ahead are the people who take charge. 
you know, they might not be the greatest web designer in the world, but they design the web, web uh, page, they design the website. They might not be the best marketers, but they are the people who go out and benefit from the booming sales, which actually they don't do very much to create because, as I explained before, it's the customers who do the heavy lifting. These people gain experience and they gain seniority and they gain stock options. And when the company is hugely successful, they make a lot of money. And I don't believe that the management teams uh, in any of the companies that I've named are necessarily composed of geniuses. To the extent they became geniuses, it was because of the experience they had from growth, which makes it possible for you to grow personally. And that is what happens in star businesses. And that is why when someone asks me what they should do in their career, I don't say, well, you should go into this niche or that niche because the market's growing fast in that. I say, you've got to find yourself a star business. And if you find yourself a star business, it's almost certain that you'll be very successful. And if you don't, it's very unlikely that you'll be very successful. It's not about you. It's about a strategic idea. It's not you or me. It's the strategy, stupid. And I just can't believe that nobody in the world, almost nobody in the world, really believes in the star principle idea. And I am very glad that that's true for the time being because I make a lot of money as a result of that. But um, look, the world is a better place because of great new businesses inventing new products that people want to buy. And so I think it's a good thing that there are more and more star businesses in the world. The 10, sorry, seven of the 10 most valuable businesses by market capitalization have been or are star businesses today. And so I urge you, if you want to be successful, if you want to make a lot of money, and if you want to enjoy your life, your working life, find and develop a star business. It's very easy. Okay, go away and do it, please. Thank you.